Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Scripture reading from John 20, 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom loved Jesus, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the womb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away the Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come to this scripture and to this day, we approach Easter from a variety of perspectives and backgrounds. For some of us, this is part of our cultural tradition. It's what we do. We go to church once or twice a year, and it's just kind of the rhythm of our life. We look for some sort of comfort or happiness. We look forward to the sporting events on TV or the meal afterward. Some of us, this is... uh, 
a time of sadness because we remember a time you seemed so close and now you seem a million miles away. We're wondering what happened to you or maybe what happened to us. Some of us come to this moment with great joy and anticipation and hope. Others come to this moment with depression or anxiety or fear or anger. But however we find ourselves right now, in all of our differences from one another, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. None of us has it all together. Each of us is what we might call a beautiful mess. And you see us in all our complexity and contradictions, in the ways we get it and the ways we don't get it. You see us, you know us, and you love us. You love us to the fullest through the self-sacrificial love of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now, because all of us need the same thing. We need you to break through. And we pray that you would do exactly that by the power of your Holy Spirit and teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. And so send us out. Teach us. Equip us to be an outpost of your resurrection. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I had two things happen to me in the last week involving the fine arts, and it has been really exciting. I received a phone call from a friend in San Francisco who's a doctor and an actor. What a, what a renaissance man. If you're watching, hello, my friend. And he called me and he said, I, I have this role in this play, and in the play I play an elder at the local church. And so first, I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything against my conscience. And second, I'd love to run the script by you. How do you think a church would or should handle these things? And so I got to talk with him a bit, and we finished up. And then he sent me an email the next day. Thanks for your time. I talked to the playwright and the director. Your, your name's actually going to be in the play. <laughs> the other thing that happened, a friend of mine, one of my neighbors, is on staff at the San Diego Opera. He sent us, Florence and me a link. He said, check out your family. And we had gone to San Diego, if you may know, had put on a drive-in opera, La Boheme at the San Diego Sports Arena. will always be the San Diego Sports Arena. And, and we went. And when my family went to go watch the opera, we were greeted by a film crew that captured our family. And then he asked us a few questions afterwards. So he sent us this link, and it was all about going to the opera, featuring our family. I was, you know, he made us sign the waiver and all that good stuff. But we had far more of a center role in it than I, than I expected. Now, I share that with you because I want you to know I'm about to be famous. So if you want to be friends, now's the time because you want to know me back then. But I also share with you what those have in common is we thought we were going to hear something. We thought we were going to witness something. We thought we were going to watch something. We thought we were going to listen to a story. And it turns out we were part of the story. We were brought in. You see, these very first followers of Jesus who went to that tomb on that first Easter, we read about these friends, and they had a story of renewal in their minds. They had a story of God will one day break through and put everything that has gone wrong to rights. And Jesus was the star of that story for them. Everything he did, everywhere he went, he was undoing the brokenness of this world. He healed broken bodies. 
He brought outsiders in. He taught in a way that nobody else could. He forgave people's sins. He said things like, I am the bread of life, and if you're hungry, come to me and eat, and you will never hunger again. Their hopes were high. And all of that was dashed at the cross on Good Friday. They had such high hopes that he would be the one. And all of that was put to an end three days before as he hung there on a cross and the story for them was completely over. And they must have been thinking, well, I guess it's not our story. And in that surprise on the first Easter in the empty tomb, they realize the story is far bigger, far grander than they ever could have imagined. And the story is not only about Jesus, it's about, uh, it's about them. It's about us. There's a bigger story, and you're in it. Frederick Beekner wrote, Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. We all have a sense in this world of both beauty and wonder, and things are not the way that they should be. When you turn on your news browser or when you look in the mirror, there is a sense that things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. There's brokenness out there. There's brokenness in here. Whether it's the COVID pandemic or racial violence or simply the ups and downs of being a human being, what do you do? How do you respond? What do you do with that nagging sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be? I think there are three main categories we find into, we fall into. One is we deal with that question hedonistically. We say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We live in San Diego, the land of the eternal happy hour. We say, I'm going to entertain myself so I don't have to think about the pain and brokenness in my life or this world. Or we deal with it apathetically. We just try to not care. We try to tune out. We try to, try to put enough distance between us and the pain. Keep it out of sight and out of mind. Or we deal with it fatalistically. We let the pain and the sorrow overwhelm us and crush us. And we can't get it out of our mind, but we become paralyzed. And so here's the question. Is it possible to live life now with the reality of death and disappointment, and sadness, and sorrow, and not need to escape, nor be overwhelmed, but rather become a person of hope, resiliency, joy, and connection. And Easter comes and shouts at you and me, yes. Easter, the resurrection of Christ, is the center of Christian faith, and hope. If it is true, if Jesus actually did rise from the dead, and we'll explore that today, if it's true, it changes everything. It means that death is not the last word on your life or mine. It means there's hope unimaginable. It means there's new creation breaking forth in the midst of the old. And so let's go on that journey with those first friends of Jesus on the first Easter and recognize that the empty tomb gives us a new perspective it shows us new creation, and it gives us a new direction. First, a new perspective. 
I have a friend named Scott. We've been buddies since college. He's been colorblind since I've known him. And we would always poke fun at him in college and tell him that he dressed himself wrong and he's clashing and things like that. But he goes through the world seeing the same things that, that I see in a very different light because the rods and cones in his eyes don't fire and send signals the same way that mine do. So I remember a couple years ago seeing a Facebook post that his wife had filmed. She had sent away for these special glasses for him to wear that somehow line things up the way that will help him to see the colors that he's missing from the spectrum. And I remember my friend Scott, not the most, most emotional guy in the world. Scott, if you're watching, I love you. I know there's a lot of love in there. Scott is putting on these glasses and he stops and he looks at his wife and sees her in more detail, more texture, more dimension than he'd ever seen her. Looks at his kids and does the same. Looks at the trees around him and asks, are they really that green? And he's moved with emotion. He had a new perspective that changed everything because he could see things in a different way. You see, it's easy to miss the resurrection. It's easy for them back then. It's easy for you and me today. These friends, don't miss this, these friends went to that tomb on that first Easter expecting to find it full. <laughs> expecting to find Jesus dead in there. They wanted to treat him like the leader of every other religion. To go and pay their respects, to remember his teachings, to follow his examples. See, we want to think about the resurrection metaphorically. We want to say something like, you know, Easter and the resurrection, that's the church's companion story to go with our story of fertility and spring and new beginnings and all of that. It's the beautiful new beginning of the world story, metaphorically. We want to treat his resurrection symbolically. You know, just as Socrates lives on in his teachings today and his philosophy, so Jesus lives on in the hearts of all of his followers. The only problem with that is the early eyewitness accounts of his resurrection don't leave that open to you and me as an option. In fact, they come and say to us, you treat Jesus as just a loving teacher or a good example, but not as the incarnate God who conquers death. You will never find him. You will never understand him. Sure, he is a teacher, and yes, he can be an example, but only because he is God in the flesh who has broken the back of death itself once and for all. Now, I realize someone's saying, okay, all right, Matt, I believe Jesus' teachings are wonderful. Love people. Forgive them. Serve your neighbors. This is inspiring. I try to follow his teachings. I, I respect that. But I can't believe the primitive claim that he actually got up from the grave. Right now you're saying, look, I'm a modern, rational, educated, thinking person. Back then they were more superstitious. Back then they believed those things. Back then they were more gullible. But we know better these days because of our scientific inquiry. My friend, let me suggest to you that that comes under the category of what one friend calls a chronological sneer. You believe because you came later on the timeline of human history, you know better than everybody who came before you. The only problem with that mindset, and I understand, I get it, 
is that that means the people 100 years from now are going to be laughing about everything you hold true today. It outdates itself. And also, let me make this point. It is true. Back then, they have not decoded DNA. They could not conceive of artificial intelligence. They didn't know what a lepton or a quirk is. Neither did most of you. But they did know that when someone dies, they tend to stay dead. People had been dying throughout human history. The Romans who crucified Jesus were experts in killing people dead. And they knew that someone after a Roman crucifixion does not wake up and walk around and talk to people and show their wounds. My point is, the resurrection was as scandalously impossible for them as it is for you and me today. Nobody could envision it. Look at Mary, one of his closest friends. She had been with Jesus for years, walking with his group of friends, listening to him teach. She heard on multiple occasions Jesus say, I will be killed and I will rise again in three days. And still, Mary's at the tomb on the third day to pay her respects and the body's gone. It doesn't even cross her mind. He mentioned the third day. Could it be? Is it possible? doesn't even cross her mind. She says, they stole his body. Where is it? She didn't recognize him. Now, as an aside, I just want to make this note. There are many um, questions, thoughts on why she didn't recognize him. But let me suggest one. And really, the important thing is what we take away from it. Mary, who loved Jesus, had prayed, had called on him, had cared for him and been cared for by him, was standing in front of the resurrected Jesus who has power over death and she didn't even know it. This is a theme you find throughout scriptures of us not recognizing Jesus in the midst of the pain of our lives. There's a story where Jesus sends his disciples out and they go through a storm in the boat and the storm is rocking this boat. They think they're going to die. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. That's a whole other sermon. And it says when they saw him, they were terrified because they thought he was a ghost. Jesus, the one who can calm the storm, is right next to them, and they're terrified. You see this again in another storm scenario, where this time Jesus is in the boat, and the wind is blowing, and the waves are buffeting the boat. It says Jesus was asleep in the boat. I don't know how you sleep through that. And his friends go and wake him up and say, don't you care that we are about to die? In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the darkness, we don't recognize who he is, and so we are afraid, and we think he doesn't care. Ultimately, on the cross, the sun refuses to shine. You and I have to believe that his friends and family, whether they were up close or scattered throughout the city, were praying, God, take him off the cross, spare his life. There has to be another way. And there was just silence. And what feels like the abandonment of God in our moment of need was actually God working out the renewal of the whole world on the cross. And now here's Mary in the garden, hopes dashed, story ended, staring Jesus in the face, and she doesn't recognize him. Here's the point. If you're going through any sort of pain or sorrow or lament, 
or grief or confusion and it feels like God is not there or God does not care, just know that you are in good company because that is the report of those who were closest to him as well. But they would teach us today that it's in those very moments that God is closer to you than the air you breathe. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Failure to recognize Jesus' presence in your life does not mean that he is not close to you. In fact, often it's the report of those I minister to in my life also, that it's in those very moments when you look back, you say, oh, he was here the whole time. So take comfort. Also, don't miss that those first apostles, those first witnesses, had questions. They had doubts. They had skepticism. Just like each of us. Welcome to the real life faith journey. Growing in faith is a process. And look at the grace and tenderness with which he meets Mary's questions. In the moment of her doubt, he does not say, How could you not believe that I would do this? How dare you question me? Not even close. In fact, the opposite. Instead, He calls her by name. He melts her heart with his grace. Friends, however you find yourself today relating to Jesus and his resurrection, maybe a friend invited you and you can't believe you're actually a part of a church service right now. Maybe you're questioning and exploring these things, wondering if you can believe and trust. Maybe your pain is screaming at you so loudly It's hard to hear anything else. Go to the tomb and look in. See him move toward you. What if it's not a coincidence that you're here right now? What if God is trying to get in front of you and say, I know you. I love you. What would it take to overturn your objections to Jesus' resurrection? Would it take overwhelming evidence or a compelling experience? These first friends and followers must have had something like that because overnight, all of them went from not believing in the resurrection to believing in the resurrection. Not only individually, entire people groups of the Jewish people and the Greek and Roman people overnight changed their worldview. Something happened on that first Sunday that changed everything. And they would say, We saw him crucified. We met him afterward and saw him risen from the dead. They might even shrug their shoulders and say, I'm as baffled as you are, but this is the way that those things happened. And John, the gospel writer, is out to show you and me that this is actual reportage and you can trust it. He includes details that myth just doesn't include. Legend just is not written in this way. He includes details like there was a foot race to the tomb between the disciple that Jesus loved. I love, that's his name for himself, by the way, right? History is written by the winners. The the disciple that Jesus loved won the race. He includes details like who won the race. It doesn't advance the narrative. 
He tells it to you because that's what happened that day. He includes details like the linens that Jesus was wrapped in were folded in such and such a way, but not the one that was covering his head. That was actually folded in a different way in a different part of the tomb. These are details that are not included in ancient legend or myth. He only includes them because it happens this way. He gives you details that you would never include if you were making up a story to advance your agenda. If you were writing this story to start a movement and advance your agenda, you would have the leading men of society, sorry, patriarchal society, the leading men of society, seeing him risen from the dead, getting it right away, and then going on to tell everybody. But instead, what do you have? You have a group of women. In that, in that society, women's testimony was not even admissible in court. You have a group of ragtag followers who don't get it right away whose first response is not unwavering faith, it's complete doubt and confusion. These are details you would never include if you were making up a story to advance your agenda. The only reason why John could possibly have written the story this way is because this is the way it happened. And here's the point. You can trust this. You can trust these accounts, not just as some well-wished thought, or some great fantasy, but as eyewitness account that Jesus rose from the dead and is who he said that he is. Friends, are you looking for meaning? Are you looking for hope? Are you curious or skeptical or searching? Look into the tomb. Look into it. That's why Renew Church exists, so that you and I and all of us here and all of us online can look into the tomb together and two steps forward and one step back and ask all of our questions and be amazed that God actually meets us where we are. That's why we have a church service every Sunday morning at 9.30. Come back, bring your friends. That's why we have community group on Wednesday night, so that we can actually interact with each other and ask all of our questions. A new perspective changes everything. C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I can see it, but because by its light I can see everything else. Resurrection gives you a new perspective. It also points to new creation. Because there's an ironic comedy going on in this story right here. In verse 15, Mary is looking at Jesus. She doesn't recognize him. It says she supposed him to be the gardener, which harkens back to the opening pages of the grand narrative in Scripture. In Genesis 1 and 2, you find the first day of creation. God is in the garden. God, God in the garden with his sleeves rolled up and dirt under his fingernails, fashioning plants and animals and humanity and breathing life into it and giving it original blessing and saying, it is good. It is very good. And the story continues. As humanity begins to take matters into our own hands, we lose our trust in God. We say, I don't know if I can really trust that God's looking out for my best interest. I'll take matters into my own hands. We know better. I want it my way. And that beautiful creation in the garden begins to unravel, begins to come undone, begins to break and decay. And you find alienation. You find 
spiritual alienation where the first humans used to walk with God in the cool of the garden and they knew God. They were united with God, but now they're hiding. And to this day, however you do it, however you describe it, each of us seeks some sort of experience of the transcendent. Whether it's in a religious group, a faith group, or the ocean is your church, or the mountains, whatever it is, we're still pursuing that spiritual union. But it's so frustrating because it's unraveling. There's psychological alienation where they used to be naked and not ashamed. Fully known, fully loved. But now they're covering themselves. They're hiding. And therapists and psychologists will say, and we've been hiding ever since. Maybe that's why deep down you have this incredible desire to be known and loved and you're terrified of being fully known. Why you have that voice in your head that says, if they really knew everything about you, they would laugh at best or run at worst. Because psychologically we're not comfortable in our own skin. Alienation, it comes undone. Socially, it unravels. As it said, the first man and woman became one flesh, fully united, completely together. And very early on, there's blame shifting. First man says, I didn't do it, it was her fault. She says, I didn't do it, it was the serpent's fault. And not too long from now, you're going to have the first murder when Cain takes his brother's life. And ever since then, relationships are so important to us. And yet, have you ever noticed, the closer you get in relationship, the harder it is. That's why Thanksgiving is so wonderful and so terrible. It brings together your family, and it brings together your family. Relationships are so important to us and so hard. You don't have to read the news for too long to see violence along racial lines, along tribal lines, along national lines. That violence radiates out as part of the decay. And finally, there's decay that occurs in the natural world. Where previously there was health and vitality. There's no indication in the garden that God had in store for humanity that their days and years should be numbered. But as it unravels, death enters the scene. Sickness enters the scene. Sorrow enters the scene. And we've been spinning out of control ever since. That's the grand story. But it continues. Because even then, God doesn't say, well, you got it going this way, so you're going to suffer the consequences. Even early on, God says, I promise to one day put all things to right. I promise to one day step into human history and do something about all that has come undone. And so when we call Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's his title. He's the anointed one of God who comes in that very presence and power to make all things new. And so on the cross, you see him take not just the injustice of society, not just the brokenness of the religious system of the day, but you see him take sorrow and sin and death an alienation upon his shoulders all the way to the bottom until it drives him into the ground. And three days later, in the empty tomb, he shows that death itself does not have the last word. That he has dealt a death blow to death itself. 
The last words on our existence are not pain, not sorrow, and not death, but new life and joy. So you see, there is an ironic comedy going on here. Mary supposes him to be the gardener. You had God in the garden, the original gardener in creation, and now you have Jesus in the garden on the first day of new creation, birthing a new creation in the midst of the old, beginning to undo all that has gone wrong, putting all that's gone wrong to rights. And here's the point of Easter is that following Jesus, being a Christian, is not simply saying, I want to be an escape artist from this broken world. You know, God, get me out of here. Not at all. God comes all the way into the inky darkness of sin and death, of pollution and corruption, of injustice and poverty. He goes into it, absorbing it. And he comes out the other side, undoing it. The promise of Easter resurrection is that God's mission of renewal in Jesus is nothing less than the forgiveness of sins. And it's a whole lot more. Individual transformation and communal renewal. Spiritual awakening and emotional healing. Physical restoration and restored relationships. Proclaiming God's love and working for justice in our city. It's all of that because he created it all. It's all falling apart and he's restoring all things. He calls us to be a part of it. It affects every aspect of society. The arts and economics. Healthcare and hospitality. Construction and education. Whether you stay at home or you sell homes. The technology sector and social work. And on and on it goes. He's out to renew it all. Is your vision of God's renewal that big? Does it run that deep? Does it have that much hope? And let me ask you this. What does it look like for your life to be part of that resurrection renewal? When you think about the people closest to you, when you think about your neighbors or your workplace, new creation is breaking forth and we're invited to participate. Friends, this Easter, maybe you expected a funeral. Maybe you expected a pretty little religious ceremony that we do. But we are given a resurrection. May this community be like those first friends of Jesus on that first Easter. May we be surprised by the empty tomb, confronted with resurrection hope, committed to journeying together and propelled into participating in God's mission. The world and your life story is going somewhere. The Lord is risen and it changes everything. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would surprise us of not only your great love and your power, but your presence, your grace to us. However we approach this first Easter, would you convince us that you have done what it takes to break through in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, and give us the grace to respond to you, to receive you, to radiate your love and your presence out into this world. 
Where we need comfort, would you comfort us? Where we need hope, would you give us hope? Where we need new life, would you break forth as the light breaks forth at the dawn? Send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.